Well, happy new year. Can you believe it? It's 2011. That's uh, that year flew by. I keep looking. I think that's a sign of age is what they tell you, right? Every time you seems like it's just the clock turning and it's the calendar turning. That's a problem. You know what I mean? Well, we are here in the new year and we are starting a new series today without apology. Why even go through the word of God? That's where we're at. We're going to be wrestling over the next six weeks with the value of this book and what role it can play in our lives. So a few facts to get us started. Almost nine in 10 American homes have at least one Bible. Nine in 10 have at least one Bible on the shelf. Not saying how much dust it has on it, just nine in 10 have a Bible, right? There's an average of three Bibles in those homes, three or more Bibles in those homes. A lot of Bibles. Six in ten people, when surveyed, responded that they do read the Bible at least occasionally. They'll check it out here and there. Two in ten said they'll actually read it either daily or weekly. So we have people who are committed to this word in some way, shape, or form. They've at least bought it. They've put it on a shelf. They're spending some time going through it. There's at least some commitment to this thing called the Bible. We actually have it as one of our pillars. Right? We have four pillars here and we say that we will preach the word of God without apology. Hey, that's the name of the sermon series, right? That's what we're talking about. Why we go after this word without apology. Why? Why do people even begin to read it on a somewhat regular basis? Why even buy it and put it on your shelf at home, even if it's just being used to hold the rest of the books up? Why are people going after it? We're going to start today by diving in and learning a little bit about the Bible. It's going to be a little bit different day here, okay? It's not going to be quite the same. So if you're visiting for the first time with us, know this. Typically, we will pick a passage, and we're just going to walk beginning to end through that passage and let it speak to us, okay? Today, we're going to start a little bit earlier than that. We're going to go outside of the Bible. We're going to do a little bit of what they would call extra biblical information, okay? We're going to get some of that pieces of info. Let's understand from the outside whether this thing is even worth looking at, and then we're going to start looking at it. All right, that's where we're headed. So turn in your notes there. You've got notes that are a part of it. And um, for those of you who've been with us for a while, you're looking and you're like, gads. <laughs> this is a lot more notes than normal, right? So don't get in a tizzy. Like, uh, this is one of those moments where you just take a look. It, we're going to walk through it step by step, okay? There's, uh, it's going to be easy. No problem. So everybody take a deep breath. You ready? Okay. Why put these notes in here like this? Because when we go through the Bible... We, uh, we have the recorded truth right here, and you can go back to it. When I start shooting facts at you, and you go home and you're like, what did he say that was, or what was that number? Or, and then you go and you start Googling it to try to find the answer, oh my word, are we in trouble, okay? So let's just make sure we get them written down, we'll get them here, and then you can at least walk home with some of that recorded stuff, all right? So here we go, some extra biblical, outside the Bible information. First point, there is a science to document validation and the Bible meets it in full there is a science to document validation and the Bible meets it in full this is a big deal all right just so you know all this information in the first point I got out of a few books you can write these down on the side if you want here's my bibliography all right so uh, first God wrote a book James McDonald 
Uh, it's a great book. It's a short book there, and it's about why trust in the Word of God. God wrote a book. A second one, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Josh McDowell. Uh, tons of great info in that. Uh, I took the pieces on the scripture from there. Case for Christ, Lee Strobel. These three are awesome apologetics books, okay? Um, and then the last one is uh, my daughter's seventh grade science book. Seriously. Opened it up, just went to it, and they've got a piece right in there on how you actually know that an ancient document can be trusted as a valid ancient document, how you know it's real, okay? So I just pulled stuff out of her seventh grade science book. So this is seventh grade science class for the first point. All right, here we go. So in science, did you know this? In science, there are three things that have to be true about the document if it's going to be accepted. It has to pass a bibliographic test. It has to pass an external test, and it has to pass an internal test. Bibliographic, external, and internal. So we're going to walk through these one at a time, okay? So first, the bibliographic test. What's its point? It ensures the document we have matches the original. It ensures the document we have today matches the original. In other words, we're sitting here with this copy, and we're at 2011, How do I know this looks anything like what was written in 400 BC? How do I know that? The bibliographic test is part of it, okay? So, what goes on in the bibliographic test? There's two pieces. First, um, you want to know that you have a lot of copies and that they all match, okay? And the second piece is you want a small time gap between the original writing and the first copy, okay? So, a small time gap and a lot of copies, So let's go through these two, all right? First of all, many agreeing copies. This is one of the pieces to the bibliographic test. Many agreeing copies. In other words, you don't want to see one copy and you have no clue what else was written. You you want to see a lot of them, okay? So let's start with one that's a a very trusted um, document, the Iliad, Homer's Iliad. Why does everybody always use Homer's Iliad when they're giving an example with the Bible? Because it's one of these things written in 800 BC, okay, and we're going to talk about date in a little bit, but it's written in 800 BC. It's an epic Greek poem. It's a great piece of ancient literature. There's 643 different partial copies of it, so they can overlay them and look at them and be able to figure out in the midst of it what the whole of it was. It's a great example of ancient literature being reproduced today. 643 copies, okay? All right, fine. Our Bible has 24,000 original copies. 24,000 of these copies going on, all right? That's a big deal. You've got full copies, 24,000 of them all over the place. The next closest ancient document, 140th of that amount, all right? Huge deal when you're talking about bibliographic evidence and again all we're talking about now is do I trust this to be an ancient document that's been well reproduced that's all we're talking about not is it God's word is it going to change my life none of that just can I trust it as being the original all right that's all we're looking at 140th is the next closest thing the Iliad all right big deal all right one other statement about this um You say, well, there's 24,000 copies, but how in the world did those copies get made? Let's make sure we understand just a little piece of the process. These guys called scribes would actually have a responsibility day in and day out to take the copies of the scripture and they would make a new copy. And what they would do is they would start at the top row and they would actually write across the letters beginning to end 
And then they would read it backwards and forwards. They would make sure they would count the number of characters and count the number of characters. They would check beginnings and ends and middles and then the next row and then do the same and the next row and do the same and the next row. And then when they got all done with the page, they would then look at firsts and lasts, either side, middles. They would count in five and up five and check that. Anything they could do to get variations to make sure that every single letter was as it should be. And then when they got done with it, they would hand it to the guy next to him and he would check it. And if it passed that check, that was a paper done. If there was any one mistake anywhere, crumple it up, throw it away, we're done, start over. Okay? Typical time would be anywhere from two to four hours to make one of those copies. That's how you end up with 24,000 copies that match each other very well. Okay? You end up with a very rigorous. So we're not talking about you put a fourth grader in a room with a pencil and you say, hey, try to copy this. And you get this hand swaggle thing and then there's some little doodle drawings on the side and, and, it, and it doesn't match at all. Like that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a rigor. These guys woke up in the morning and said, my job is to take the very word of God and make sure it is reproduced for those around us to see. And they took it very seriously. That's how you end up with 24. Sometimes it made them cry. That's how you end up with 24,000 copies that are matching. Okay. So that's a big deal. Many agreeing copies. All right. That's the first piece. The second piece. There is a, a small amount of time between the original writing and the earliest copy. Remember, we're under bibliographic test. This is what's required. A small amount of time between the original writing and the earliest copy. So again, we go back to Homer's Iliad. It was written about 800 B.C. And uh, the first original copy that they've got is about 400 B.C. So about 400 year gap there. Okay. And now it's 2011. So you're talking about 2,500 years there. But you've got a copy that goes all the way back to just 400 year gap. And that's a pretty good gap. It's pretty trusted. And so they're feeling good with Homer's Iliad has been reproduced. Okay. So the New Testament. Well, the New Testament has actually less than 30 years. Less than 30 years is the gap on that. Okay. In other words, less than one generation. Like the first copy is being written when some of the guys who wrote the original are still alive. And they're going, yeah, that's what I wrote. Or, or their brother or their cousin is going, yeah, that's what he wrote. I've actually got the copy of, right? It could be verified right then and right there. It was written within the same generation, about a 30-year gap or less in some cases. So the New Testament passes the bibliographic test on the very short gap of time. Is everybody getting this? Like, this is a big deal. So when science is coming in and they're saying, people can say, I'm not sure you can really trust it. It's an old document. <clears throat> Wrong answer. Right? Like, we've got tons of copies. And we've got very short gaps of time. Bibliographic test, it passes. All right? Well, that's the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? Okay, the Old Testament is in a little different situation. The Old Testament had a pretty large gap of time for a long period of time there. Okay? About 1,300 years. Like, the last book written was about 400 B.C. And the earliest copy they had was about 980. About 1,300 years. So it was easy to shoot some darts at that thing. Right? The statement became, yeah, but 1,300 years. I mean, who knows what that really said? I mean, they could have changed anything. I mean, take Isaiah 53. And here's this awesome passage of the coming Messiah. And he's going to be this servant savior and this sacrificial savior. And he'll be the lamb that's sacrificed. And he's going to be beaten and mocked and spit upon. And yeah, but it was written 900, 1,000 years after Christ came. I mean, maybe they just changed it so it matched, 
right? I mean, I'm not sure who would want to change it and make a lie and then die for it. But nonetheless, that's a dart you could throw at it. Maybe they just changed it to match it. Okay. Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you ever heard of that? So we're going to fill in the blank in just a second. Just listen to this story. All right. So there's a shepherd boy. He's out, bored to tears, watching his sheep. Picks up a few rocks and he's skipping them around, right? And he takes a couple of these rocks and he's tossing them into the canyons, tosses them into a cave, and he hits one of the caves, tosses it in, and as the rock goes down and he hears it clink like a rock would on rock, all of a sudden when it gets to the bottom, he hears like glass smash, like a sound. He's like, what was that? And he looks in, can't really see, climbs down in there and finds tons of jars of clay that have been sealed. And the ones that have been smashed with that rock he threw inside are these scrolls and these papers. And as he pulls them out, he's amazed with what they are. They actually sat on him for a little while. Then the word started getting out and the archaeologists went nuts. We got to see this. And they get in there and they check out these documents. And they're dated not from 1000 AD or 900 AD. They're dated 100 BC is their age. Like a thousand year gap gets closed down. And guess what? Documents like Isaiah 53 are found in there. And now they open it up and they start looking at Isaiah 53 and you're like, yeah, what does it really say? And it says, there's going to be this coming Messiah. And he's going to be a servant savior. He's going to be sacrificial lamb. He's going to be, the prophecies were intact. Over a thousand year gap closed. Now it's pre-Christ. It is speaking forward of. And they're like, yeah, but... How close is it to what we really had in 900 AD, right? So they compare the two. And guess what? Of total, over that thousand-year time frame, 17 letters had changed. 14 of them were actually just kind of new ways to spell the word or a conjunction going on. So there was actually one word, the word light, that was added. And it was kind of this augmenting of a passage. It says the same thing. Same meaning, same passage. So they had one guy somewhere who added three letters. Other than that, exactly the same thing. Dead match. Christ being spoken of before the time of Christ by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And the scientists all say, oops. Right? I mean, what can you say? I mean, I was at a point where I was using it to throw a dart at it. And like, you can't trust that. And maybe they just, maybe they made it up after the fact. And maybe they... Never mind. Let's move on to a different argument because that one doesn't work. The reality is when you look at the bibliographic stuff, the bibliographic tests within scripture, you find an amazing trustworthiness. The bullet to fill in there, fill in there. Old Testament. I can't even read my own writing. What is it? The Old Testament is reduced via Dead Sea Scrolls from 1300 years to less than 300 years. The 1300 year gap gets collapsed down to just 300 years remember what's the iliad 400 years like we've got short gaps of time and we've got many many copies so if you're trying to look at the bible and say yeah but it's this old archaic document kid you not went on the web found some guy who says why would i want to read a book that a bunch of goat herders wrote okay that's the kind of temperament going on be really careful we have to think about is it trustworthy We've got something here that has multiple, multiple copies, and it's got tons of time that's been managed in, and it's actually got very short gap from the original writing to the first copy. It passes the bibliographic test. It's unbelievably reliable as an ancient document, all right? So that's the bibliographic. Maybe we can say it just like this. Uh, It is well-preserved, okay? Just say it with me. It's well-preserved. That's what we're looking at. We've got the word of God and it is well preserved. Second, 
the external test. So again, we're in this science, like how do you know you've got a document that's trustworthy? Do you feel like you're in seventh grade science yet? Are you feeling the stress? There's no exam at the end, like so now you can breathe deep, right? It's just good we know this. It's good we understand that our foundation for the word is not just raw faith. There actually is some strong science behind what's going on. We can trust it. So the external test, it ensures that the document matches up with the historical and archaeological evidence. This ensures the document matches up with historical and archaeological evidence. I mean, you can write a bunch of whack job information, and that's nice, but it's not helpful, and it's not going to be a trusted document, a trusted ancient document. So what do we mean here? Well, first, there are eyewitness accounts. From outside of the scriptures, there are people who are saying, yes, I was there at that time, and yes, I confer that what is written there did happen. We have eyewitness accounts that corroborate it, absolutely supported. And then secondly, there are archaeological examples. There are archaeology examples. And this is a big one because this is, again, we're in a world of science today. So science, people love to use science to build things up, but they also use, use it to tear it down. And it can be wrongly used. Just so you know, archaeology is probably the most misused element when it comes to scripture. And uh, really right now, there are so many people that use this, this style of thinking. They say, yeah, if we don't have the proof of it in archaeology, then it must not have happened, right? So I don't have any archaeological evidence of that, so it's not true. Let me give you two examples. People are saying, first five books of the Bible, Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right, those five books. Are those really written by Moses? I mean, I don't, I don't know, you know? Scientists are saying, I, I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I would assert that people in the time of Moses never even wrote a thing. There was no writing. We have no archaeological evidence of Moses writing a doggone thing. We have no archaeological evidence of anybody in Moses' time frame writing anything. There is no writing from his time. Are you seeing it? So if there's no writing from his time, then Moses couldn't have written it. If Moses didn't write it, then the first five books are a joke. If the five books are a joke, then the whole book's a joke. Throw it all out and we're safe. Right? Are you seeing it? Okay. And then, well, up until about 1975, when they found the Ebla tablets, and as they started looking at these Ebla tablets, they dated them and looked at the history of them and found them to be not from the time of Moses, but from a thousand years before Moses. And it was writings and histories and politics and laws. There was writing. There was structure. There was. And now all of a sudden, well, maybe that Moses guy could have written something. Right? Are you seeing it? The the archaeological evidence is there for it. And as it unfolds, it continues to support. And the number one argument used is, I don't see it right now. Well, just hang on. Dig a little more. Right? It's that kind of thing. So be careful. Another one, the Hittites, another archaeological example. This was a joke for a long time, hundreds and hundreds of years. We had uh, people saying, you know how I know the Bible's a joke? Because the arch nemesis is this group called the Hittites. It was listed over 50 times in scripture. It doesn't even exist, the Hittites. We have no archaeological proof of this group existing. None. Well, until the last 20 years. And now in the last 20 years, they've come up with hundreds of examples of references to the Hittites existing. And not just existing, but thriving as a nation for about 1,200 years. Oh, and it would have been right about the same time that the Bible was mentioning them as an arch nemesis. Archaeology is supporting what's going on in Scripture. We have to be very clear on that. 
Okay? And the biggest argument people use is, haven't seen it in archaeology yet. Just hold on. Right? That's like sitting on the roller coaster, and it's not moving yet, and you're like, this ride is not fun. Well, how do you know? Because it hasn't gone anywhere yet. Just hang on. Right? That's where we're at with so much of this. It's going to be unfolding over time. Trust it. The external test is being passed. All right? So, first we said it absolutely is preserved. We also should say this. It matches with archaeology. Go ahead and say it with me. It matches with archaeology. Like, these are really rudimentary statements. Some of this is, you're going, wow, this is really not like what I expected coming to church today. (laughs) This is what we need to understand as a foundation. That it bibliographically, that externally, this is a trusted document. And the third piece is the internal test. This ensures that there are no contradictions within the document. This ensures that there are no contradictions within the document. So, first, consistency. Did you know that there is over 1,500 years of time that the authors were uh, living and writing in? 1,500 years of spread out time for the recordings. Over 40 authors, three continents, Africa and Asia and Europe. There's during wars and times of peace, there's, you know, all different kinds of situations going on, massive controversial topics being dealt with, and there's this intense agreement amongst the writings, okay? This extreme agreement. As a matter of fact, they uh, took some publicists and they asked them, hey, if you had 1,500 years, 40 authors, three continents, all these topics, give me one word you would expect out of that from the writings, the hands-down answer that came back was chaos. Absolute chaos. Total disagreement everywhere, broad-based opinion changes, lots of challenges and controversy, right? And instead we have this intense matching and aligning of Scripture going on. That's a big deal. Lots of authorship over a broad age range and time, time frame and great matchup. Consistency. The second one is prophecies fulfilled. You know, there's over 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. And at this point, about 2,000 of them have been fulfilled. 2,000 prophecies fulfilled out of 2,500. This is an active document continuing to reveal what's going on. The internal evidences are uncanny, outstanding, mind-boggling. As you begin to look at what's here, it's amazing how it passes the internal test. And then the last one, I just threw this in uh, for those who like to think on the philosophical level a little bit. Aristotle's dictum. Aristotle. He was talking about judging poetry and he was talking about judging logic. And this is what he wrote. Aristotle's dictum. The benefit of the doubt is to be given to the document itself, not to the critic. The benefit of the doubt is to be given to the document itself, not to the critic. Let me just explain this for a second. What this means is they had a ton of people who were looking at writings, ancient writings, commonplace writings, and he was having problems. Problems where when they looked at the the writing, they would actually say things like, I don't agree with that. Well, that's the critic saying he actually gets the benefit of the doubt. Or they would look at it and they would say, I disagree. I don't think he was accurate in his assumption there. Or I find this to be a contradiction with this. But really what we should be doing when we look at a document is assume that there is some purpose in the writing of that paper, whatever it was, whether it's the Bible or something else. And because the guy's writing it with a purpose, look for where it actually aligns and complements. Try to see the way it agrees with itself. 
Don't try to look for the contradiction and say, there, that, that looks like a contradiction. Example, first contradiction labeled in scripture that people talk about. God complains about, well, first he says the, the creation is great. This is very good. And then a few chapters later, he says, this is bad. That's a contradiction. Well, now look at it, though. Is it or is it a compliment? When you look at it in chapter one, he's saying he just designed it perfectly with absolute perfection, absolutely as he wanted it. And this is very good. And then five chapters later, in the midst of total destruction and sin and chaos and men running rampant, doing their own things, he says, this is not good. Like when you look at it in context, you go, what an awesome compliment for what's being said. God is teaching right here clearly that the way he designed it in perfection is just as he wanted it. And this mess is not. That's not a contradiction. That's a perfect compliment. That's what we need to be looking for as we read scripture. Does that make sense? So when somebody says to you, why are you working so hard to get this to match up, to let scripture align with scripture? You can look at them and say, why, it's because of Aristotle's dictum, right? It's important that we understand that's not just some game to try to make scripture work for us. It's an actual scientific statement of how to let documents really live. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Okay, so that is the. Bibliographic, the external, and the internal. Let me just say it to you this way. Years back, I was an engineer. Uh, can you tell? No. So I was an engineer, and uh, I was actually teaching a, a new believers class at Harvest Naperville. And uh, I was teaching the class uh, the first couple of weeks, and uh, we had a couple of people in there who weren't believers. And one guy who was uh, engaged um, was just asking a bunch of questions. And we had set up to go out to a dinner with him, and we went out to that dinner uh, a few weeks after the class had ended. And he said, hey, I just wanted to let you know, uh, a couple weeks ago, I accepted Christ. And this was like halfway through the meal. You know, where you're like, what? Dude, how come you didn't tell us a long time ago? And he goes, I don't know. I just thought you maybe you didn't. I don't know. And so then he starts explaining. I said, what? How did it happen? Well, it was the class and some of what I learned. And I went to see the Passion of the Christ. That was the time the Passion of the Christ was out. And he said, I sat there in awe as I watched what he went through for me. And I went home that night and said, that's it. I'm giving my life to him. And I said, well, what, what got you stirred on this whole hunt? And he said, honestly... I came to the class with one question. It was, if this is real, if I need to be listening to it, then I'm going to open my ears to it. And if it's a joke, then I'm not. And the first night you went through a bunch of stuff, which is, this is what I went through, bibliographic, external and internal, it can be trusted. It is an unbelievable example of an ancient document well reproduced. And he said, that was it for me. I said from there, then I got to start listening to what it says. And over the next few weeks, I learned all about who Christ was. And then I went and saw a movie and got to learn all about who he was. And I gave him my life. And that's where I'm at. That is letting the word change us. The first point here, this is all we need to accept from it. It is an unbelievable example of ancient literature and documentation. Well copied, well reproduced. No question. It is like the original. It is a match. It can be trusted. Do you get that? Okay, just say it with me. It can be trusted. That's all we're supposed to get out of the first point. But you got a lot of stuff written down so that if you want to go after it, if you're a little hungry for it, please, there is science around it. It's not faith alone. Go after it. It can be trusted. All right? Second point. 
I got a lot of notes today. All right, second point. The Bible is preeminent among all documents in both circulation and preservation. Among all documents in both circulation and preservation. So first, I'll just say this. Experientially, people over the years have read this book and their hearts have gone ablaze. Their lives have begun to transform. They've had their minds cleansed. They've had their passions purified. And as they begin to spend time experientially in this book, they begin to say, this is worth getting out. I should share this with somebody. And so they share with a friend or another friend. And then the the really aggressive guys say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this book and I am going to go hard after getting it printed and getting it handed out to others. And the circulation is based 100% on the experience of life-changing moments with God. And in the midst of it, they decided to circulate. A couple facts here. About 100 million copies get circulated annually in all the languages of the world. About 100 million. There was actually about 650 million partials that were distributed in like 2000 alone. Uh, when you start looking at little New Testaments or the Gospel of John, that kind of thing. Just tons and tons of circulation. Why? Because people depend on it and rely on it for life change. And they're excited to hand it out. Preservation. Every generation has experienced at least one nation, if not multiple nations, trying to kill all the scripture they can find. Burn it, remove it, take it out, do whatever you can, get rid of that book. How many universities do you know of that are trying to get rid of the Book of Mormon right now or, or the Koran or think about it. There's some pretty serious aggressiveness against the Bible. Why? Hint, because it's the word of God. And because it is life-changing and world-altering. And it does threaten all of society in the midst of saying, there is somebody worth following. And it's not, not you. Sad to say, the world isn't revolving around you. The world is revolving around God Almighty. And that's where we need to be headed. This word is powerful. And it is life-changing. And it has been circulated at ridiculously high levels. Let me just say it this way. William Tyndale lived in the 1500s. He became passionate about translating it into the common language, English language. He said, you know what's ridiculous is we got everybody going to church and they're listening in Latin and they don't even know Latin anymore. And so they don't know what's being said and they don't know what's being taught. And so they just do whatever they're told. And I'm sick of that. I want to see him actually be quoting the very words of God, knowing the words of God. I'm going after that. And so he began to get it translated into English and get it handed out. He got hundreds of them handed out, uh, and then the government went after him hard. In the end, William Tyndale ended up being strangled and burned for his position on this word. He was so dedicated to this word being preserved and handed out that he was willing to give his life for it. Where do we stand? How do we feel about this book that we may have three or eight or ten of sitting on our bookshelf? Are we ready To go to the mat for the truth of the word. Like Tyndale. Like all the early men of the scriptures. We have a book that is preeminent among all ancient documents. Absolutely the best example of an ancient document being verified. Hands down, no question. We have a book that is preeminent among circulation. Among absolute distribution. But we also now have a book that is preeminent among life change. And that brings us to our third point. Okay.
Pay attention to the word. It is empowered like no other document. It is empowered by God like no other document. Turn with me, if you will, to Second Peter chapter 1. It's time to get into the word. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. You know, we got the ushers coming forward with Bibles. If uh, you need a Bible, just raise your hands. We'd love to loan one to you here, okay? Just raise your hands and they'll get a Bible to you. We're going to walk through a few verses here. Second Peter 1, 16 to 21. Second Peter 1, 16 to 21. So raise your hands if you need a Bible, we'll get one to you. All right. This point is a big deal. This is where we're going to go. Pay attention to the word is empowered, God empowered, like no other document. You ready? Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Are you hearing it? The author, Peter, is saying, I want you to know this. I am an eyewitness. I was there. I heard his voice. I heard the thundering of the almighty voice of God. I saw Jesus Christ moving people and shaping lives. I saw miracles occurring. I'm telling you this. I write this book with total conviction. God is at work. That's what we're hearing. Be passionate about what we're reading. This is more than just some guy writing some stuff. It's not some myths created. It's not some junk to just try to wrestle with each day. And maybe I'll read a poem today from somebody. No, I'll read the Bible. That's not what we're talking about. It's the life-giving, world-altering truth of God captured for us over time. May we look at it not as myths, but as eyewitness accounts of the Almighty and His moving And the beauty of it is, not only is it not myths, but it is, I'm trying to track with our notes here, so it's not just myths, it's also the eyewitness accounts, those are the first two, not myths, but eyewitness accounts, notice now, it says, in verse 19, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. It contains prophecy. We don't have statements just of history. We have statements of future. We don't just have statements of events that have occurred. We have statements of events that will occur. Remember I told you about 2,500 of those and about 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled. Another 500 still coming. When you look at Daniel and Revelation and all that's going on there, and as God continues to unfold this world in his sovereign hand, we have a book that is not just a lamp to the past, but a lamp to the future. We have a book that guides us into all truth. We have a book that's recorded with total conviction from those around it saying, may we trust in the book that God wrote. That's where we're going. He says, We have something more sure, the prophetic word. We have this prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention, like a lamp shining in a dark place. Have you ever walked into a dark room? Imagine this whole room is black, and in one corner there's a light on. That's his visual image. This is the lamp 
in the dark room. The dark room is our world. And this is the light, the insight to how God is working and where he's going and what he's doing. His word alive for you today, helping give you insight. It says that we should pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. This morning star, have you ever gone out at dawn? And as the sun is rising, there's just one star left that you see, that morning star. That's how bright that star is, is in the midst of the sun shining, you still see the morning star. The morning star, Jesus Christ himself coming back, perfection among us, the absolute perfection of heaven, us with him. That's the point where the word is something we can celebrate as setting aside because we are with the word perfectly for all eternity. Until then, pay attention to the word. Notice that it says in verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Let that settle in for a minute. Not the will of man. That's not what wrote this book. Not the will of man. Not a guy sitting down saying, I wonder if I should write something, something else. Well, what was the something else? But men spoke from God as they were carried away carried along by the Holy Spirit. Carried along by the Holy Spirit. We're we're told in 2 Timothy, it's this God breathed. The idea of God working with man. This is the best best explanation I ever heard of it. Is a man who God is going to use as an author later in life. He walks him through a series of experiences. He begins to build his vocabulary and his understanding. He's building up in that man sort of a, a repertoire, a tool set that he can use. And then later in time, he comes in and he says, here's what I want said. And he chooses from that man's vocabulary and that man's ways of thinking and that man's ideas of life as his experiences have built him up. That's God breathed. God working with man, God working through man, creating the scripture that we have, God's ideas completely penned out with absolute trustworthiness, but it's not just God dictating, it's not just God's words, he's like, what's that word, how do you spell that, that's not it, it's God using his knowledge and passions and experiences to pen what we have, do you see that, God working with man, it's him carried along by the Holy Spirit, it's a joint effort that we have here. And the beauty of purpose here, you you look at, he talks about the prophecy. Well, how do you know it's from God? The detail of specific prophecy that is fulfilled. That's how you know. Trust him. God is writing an amazing book to change our lives. And we have this recorded and we have this so trusted. We have a foundation to be standing on where scientifically the best ancient document known to man. We have in our hands the most circulated document in all of history. We have in our hands that which is not myth, but it is eyewitness accounts recorded by those carried along by the Holy Spirit, absolutely trustworthy. The word of God. Without apology, we will be preaching that word. Amen? Get a little pumped on that one. That's what we're about here. The Bible It's what we're about. You're not going to find me going through a lot of extra biblical proof texting in here, right? For those who've been around for a while, you're like, this is rare, is it not? Like we spend our time in the word, but I want you to know this word can be trusted. That's where we are. One last statement. Well, how do I know that we've got the books that were actually the inspired books? What are the tests that tell us about 
this being an inspired book. You know, that word canon, maybe you've heard it. What's the canon of scripture? Here's five A's that let you know the kind of tests they use. These are the five tests they use to make sure that something should be in the Bible. Okay. The first day authority. The book itself had to claim authority. Did you know over 4,000 times this Bible says, and God said, or the Lord said, or the Lord came to so-and-so and authority is declared within this Bible. Okay. When someone writes, I have no clue what I'm thinking. I'm just trying to record my thoughts here. No authority there. Okay. All right. Number two, authorship must be a man of God, a known man of God. Okay. This one they were a little careful on because there were times where the authorship was slightly in question. They weren't sure exactly who wrote it, but they know who brought it along and they knew they trusted them. But authorship, it was a key part of it. All right. So authority and authorship. The third one, authenticity. It had to speak the truth about God and man and salvation. It had to be consistent. If there was inconsistencies within it, it was thrown out. If there were inconsistencies against other scripture that they knew was scripture, it was thrown out. It had to be consistent. All right. So authenticity. Number four, alive. It had to have life changing insight. It had to be this obvious that must be from God. Look at the clarity of life that comes as you grasp that truth. That had to be a part of it. Okay. And aliveness to it. So authority and authorship, authenticity, alive. And then the last piece is acceptance. Acceptance. The local churches of that time had to be using it regularly in their readings and had to say, this is a book that we truly want to say is from God. The, the um, acceptance of that book was massive and important. Okay, These five A's as you talk about them. So we'll just say them again here. Authority, authorship, authenticity had to be alive and there had to be acceptance. Those five A's are what let you know that was a book that was truly God-breathed. Truly God breathed when you run into something that is in question as to whether it should be in the canon and there are books right like the apocrypha There are questions that people have should that be in there or not? Well, should those seven or 14 books be there and well, how does it stand up when, when like one of the books second Maccabees says Hey, if I'm wrong, then forgive me That's actually recorded there. If what I just wrote is wrong, then please forgive me instead of what I'm writing is from the word of God. God said, are you seeing how it missed the authority statement? It's saying, I don't know. And just so you know, for the Apocrypha, like all those books were written in a time period where there is no known prophet from 400 BC to the time of Christ, no man of God. So authorship, not there, no known man of God. Like that's what we're looking for when we go after the books of the Bible, solid trustworthy eyewitness men of God stating God said with life-changing world-altering opportunity for you today right here right now we can have the most unbelievable experience of our lives as we spend time with them here's what I'm gonna ask we're gonna have the ushers come forward and they're gonna pass out a bookmark everybody take one of these bookmarks okay Here's what we're going to do while they're passing out. I'll step up here. This is my request to you guys. It's a new year. It's 2011. It's time for a 30 day challenge, right? Kent was joking around about, Hey, how y'all doing with uh, new year's resolutions? And here's a request that I've got for you. Commit to taking the next 30 days. We're going to do six weeks, five days a week of just reading through the Bible together. 
I put together here on the back side of this, there's a list of the verses for each day. There's a little circle. You can put a check mark in it. This is a chance for all of us together to commit to saying, let's read through God's word together for the next 30 days. Okay. This is a, are you in? God wrote a book and he wrote a book that's ready to rock your world. There is truth in here that can shape your life for today and for tomorrow. Are you in? Do you want to commit with us over the next 30 days to reading this word? The word that can be trusted. The word that can be known. The word that can shape your life. Are you in? So now I ask you this with an expected answer back. Are you in? Are you in? It's time for us to say, Lord, I'm going to go to your word daily. And as we learn each week more about your awesome word, may I read it throughout the week and be changed for a lifetime. Are you in? Okay, let me just do this. Look at the front. There's a little picture on the front. You see that? We're just going to talk for two seconds about a little assignment here. This is what I'd ask you to do. Don't just pick the Bible up and read it. Okay, don't just read through and go, that was nice, and then go away. You'll remember it about as well as you remember the Kellogg cereal box that you read. Okay? So take just an extra moment to write down just a couple of things you learned. Okay? That's all I'm asking. So if you notice here in the picture, you see on the left side of the picture, it says their world. Do you see that? Where it says their world. So the Bible is a true document recorded in time. It is an ancient document. There was stuff going on with these people. What's going on in their world? What do you see? What observations can you make? What statements were made? What what did they experience? What did they feel like? Sometimes it tells you that they were sorrowful or they were amazed or they were... What's going on in their world? Just make some observations. It's real basic as you're reading along. You know, or Peter's really pumped up about the word. You know, you look at the passage today we just went through. Peter's pumped up. Doesn't think it's a myth. Thinks it's totally true. Right? So you're writing what's true in their world. What's the principle... That crosses over to today. Look for that timeless truth. This is the way to say it. We serve a God who says, I am the Lord your God. I change not. If we have a God who does not change, then there is truth about him that does not change. And we are going after that timeless truth. What are those biblical principles, those timeless truths that are true even today? Notice as we were reading in Peter here, what's the point that I put there for point number three? Pay attention to the word. That's a command given. It's something you can apply and it's true today, right? That's what we're looking for. It's just, so some recordings about them, what took place in their world, what's going on as far as a principle, like pay attention to the word. And then, so what can I do with it today? Well, I could, I could start reading maybe five times a week for six weeks. What an awesome application. And so what I'm walking away with here is, Lord, I'm in. I'm going to commit to reading for 30 days your word. And my request to you is this, Lord, Please change me. Please show me the awesome power of your word. I put together on here, just so you know, the way this thing is structured is um, we're going to go through the book of 2 Corinthians. That is Paul's most uh, personal book. He shares philosophy ministries. He shares hurts. He shares sorrows. He shares passions and hungers. It's a great book about ministry and God's glory and the church and, and our hearts for him. And 2 Corinthians, it's going to be an awesome book of Lord, change me to be more like you. 
But it's more than that. It's also some psalms, and those psalms are all about the Word of God. So as you're reading each day, there's a little bit of a psalm to go through that just says, what's so great about God's Word today? And you're just reading through those pieces. We're going to read Psalm 1 and Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 and Psalm 34. And, and then there's also one more piece, which is every Friday, the passage on there is the passage I'm going to be preaching that Sunday. So you will have already pre-read the passage. You're ready to rock. We're going together, okay? So again, I ask you this question. Are you in? It's time for us as a body to say, Lord, shape us. We're going to take your word and we are going to lift it up without apology. You are the most faithful God in the universe. We are hungry to see you move in our lives. Lord, take your word. I want it to come to life before me. I'm leaning upon it. That's our prayer. That's my prayer for you. That over the next 30 days, maybe you haven't read the Bible in five years, 10 years. Maybe you've never opened it. Maybe you read it all the time. Maybe you're saying, I'm one of those guys who wants to read it all the time and I can't ever figure out what to read. Well, at least now you know, right? Let's do this together over the next 30 days and watch the faithful God of the universe change our lives. Let's pray.